pain can be such a tool of teaching, right? And pain can give us better vision of our current experiences, I believe. And so God's grace might come in the form of things that hurt. And I, I feel like I've learned a lot of, a lot about that. And I've been grateful for that because those kinds of pains are hopefully cutting away the parts of me that are not supposed to be there, right? That if he's really forming me and casting me into his image, then he's going to have to burn off some of that dross. He's going to have to cut away the things that aren't supposed to be there. He's going to have to pull the weeds, <laughs> you know, all the different metaphors you can use, but that is going to be painful and it should, and we should expect that and be grateful for that. And that is a hard virtue to practice. I'm talking today with Jessica Husen Wilson, who is the inaugural visiting scholar of liberal arts at Pepperdine University and senior fellow at Trinity Forum. She's the author and editor of several books, including Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which won a Book of the Year award in arts and culture from Christianity Today in 2019, and a book we discussed today, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Jessica Hooten Wilson, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to see you. Yes, thanks for the invitation. Um, yeah, you are very busy, so I feel especially honored that you're coming on this podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Um, <laughs> we're talking about um, a book today you published just earlier this year called The Scandal of Holiness, subtitled Renewing Your Imagination on the Company of Literary Saints. And you've written other books prior to this one, several in fact, but I'm, but reading this, I mean, would it be fair to say that this book speaks to ideas that have kind of long informed your sense of what literature is and why it's important? Is that fair? Or is this book really a departure from past work? No, this would definitely be in line with the other things that I've done. For the longest time since I was a child, I've been drawn to these people. I, I would fall in love with characters. I mean, I remember even reading things like R.L. Stein or Christopher Pike when I was little. And I would literally have crushes on characters. I'd want to be best <laughs> friends with characters. I'd want to be characters. And so I think I've just always had that draw to literature, that it, it really was making me who I was. And as a professor, I was realizing there were a lot of students who didn't understand that's why we're reading. That's the purpose of reading at a Christian higher ed university is to get to know these people, that they can walk this journey with us, that life is a pilgrimage and, and these characters are showing us the way towards God. And these were just things that I wasn't, I was trying to communicate to them, but they, it wasn't familiar to them. Okay, great. You know, on that subject uh, about these kind of animated life of characters and your identification with them, I, you know, this podcast is titled Faith and Imagination, and I love what you write about imagination. I'm quoting you here in the book. If you want to comment on this, feel free. It, sure. You write, um, to imagine means to know in our affections, memories, habits, desires, attitudes. We participate in our world based on how we see ourselves situated within it. In other words, we imagine ourselves within a story in a certain way that affects our dispositions, loves, and behaviors. That's a much more broad sense of imagination than just simply inventing stuff or making stuff up. Right. It's not really just the fictional part of our imagination, which I think is how we've relegated that category. Instead, if we think of a human person in Trinitarian terms as having the faith and the reason 
and then imagination, those things all play into how you make choices in life, where your will responds to, right? Your faith or your reason, your imagination. So reason and imagination go together. They shouldn't be separated. But imagination has a lot more to do with the heart of the person, whereas reason, of course, is the head of the person. Yeah, great. Um, you know, inter- I'm talking with you. You're, you're, an, you're an interesting you know, sort of figure, Jessica. I mean, you're a, you're a university teacher. Uh, you're a writer. Uh, you're also a public intellectual um, with heavy demands on your time. And I'm curious, you know, and, and but you're not that old. You're not 60, you know, you're 40, okay, so thereabouts, right? You're, you're young in academic terms. Um, is this the life that you envisioned for yourself? You imagined characters when you were young. Did you envision yeah. this uh, or did this life kind of come to you by surprise? Yes, by surprise. You know, the, the world has changed a lot just in two years. And my reality has changed dramatically in two years. So when I was younger, I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to share books. That was always something I was doing. I kind of imagined myself as a little old bitty in a bookstore and getting like, <laughs> you know, what's your what's your favorite book you're reading now? Let me pick out something else for you. I thought maybe I'd work in a bookstore and write novels, you know, into my old age and um, have millions of children around me. And that was just kind of my vision of what life would look like. And as I grew up, going to graduate school was the best fit because all day long you got to wrestle with ideas and read books for a living. People were paying you, right? You're receiving scholarship to get to do that. And then when you're a professor, you're getting paid to do the same thing, right? You're getting to share the things you love. Everything changed in 2020. So when I started having to record my class lectures, which I I didn't even usually do lecture, I did Socratic discussion, but I had to format it in such a way that students could access it once they returned home. And I put those Brothers Karamazov lectures online. And, you know, I'd already written two books on Brothers Karamazov, but that just kind of took over in the public sphere in a way that I didn't imagine. And and that led to a lot more opportunities to read and write in the public square. And so my my whole scholarship switched gears away, not necessarily always away from the classroom. I love the classroom. I'm such a teacher first but more of my scholarship was less for libraries and more for the public space. Okay, well you've got a gift for it. I mean, it was something you learn as an academic, right? Is that there are people who are really good in their narrow fields, they, they know a lot, they speak to other scholars and, and to students very well, but they can't speak beyond it. Um, and in what you're doing, I mean, you clearly you can do that, but you've also been uh, so good at speaking to a broader public. Uh, let me ask you about um, about this book now, The Scandal of Holiness. There's a long tradition of literary criticism, especially, uh, I'd say, religiously inflected literary criticism uh, that sees fiction as potentially dangerous, right? That it glamorizes evil or degeneracy. It's as old as Samuel Johnson you know, in the 18th century. Um, in earlier eras, and still sometimes in our own, um, fiction is portrayed as poison for vulnerable minds, right? Now, your argument seems to draw on the logic of that tradition, and it insists that literature indeed is influential, but you make the opposite case, mm-hmm. namely that our engagement of fiction renders us more holy. Um, yeah. Am I reading that right? Can you explain what that yeah. means? Sure, absolutely. Well, if you go back in the tradition to people like Augustine or Dante, I think we have examples of either going one way or another, that it can lead you to vice or to virtue when it comes to imitation in literature and how it can, you can live live vicariously through the stories that you're reading and then you want to act or be different after that reading. So Augustine, the famous example from Confessions is when he's reading the passage about the fall of Dido. 
and it's tragic. And he weeps that he was so drawn to her story, but was not weeping enough for his sins. And many people look at that example and they're like, see, literature's dangerous. I think what Augustine is pointing out is more no literature needs to be moving our catharsis towards the proper end, which is recognizing our own lostness the way Dido had lostness and Augustine had lostness. And that's why he even includes this passage in the confessions. That's why he writes confessions in a way that in a sense models the journey of Aeneas, right? His own journey is kind of put on top Hmm. of that where he moves Hmm. from Africa, from Carthage, right, to Italy. He's imitating this journey. He's showing the proper way that imitation should look versus leading us to only enjoy the emotional catharsis for weeping for Dido. And so I think throughout the tradition, you can see both the pitfalls, but also the possibilities for reading literature well. Well, that's great. That's a great insight. Um, The question about literature I'll ask you, could you have written a book about the way that, say, you know, movies help us build our character and make us more inclined to the things of God? Or is there something specific about literature that you think was really unique that you were speaking to specifically? So there there are some great theologians who have written on film. Robert Johnson, Thomas Hibbs, those are some of the people I think of. And they argue that some of these I- images, some of the ways the pacings of the film can actually change our dispositions, can move us from distraction to attention. So there might be a lot of benefits that I don't fully understand with film, and it's just not my area. So when I talk to people about how to move towards holiness, I say there's lots of ways that God is going to call to you. But historically, for hundreds of years, his people were people of the book. Mm. Christ is the word. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and. Yeah. The disciples chose words, psalmist chose words by which to understand and know God. And so I think that we are missing out on one of the prime ways that God speaks to us. I mean, he even creates the world through words yeah. when we don't spend enough time in words themselves. That's great. Yeah, it would be so different if it were in the beginning was the image. It's a different, yeah, right. you know, right? It's <laughs> a great point. Um, let me ask about the title then of your book, The Scandal of Holiness. Why do you describe holiness as scandalous? Oh, I just, I love this title. This was so important to me. This was something that I insisted on. And I'm taking the word scandal from the New Testament, right? The, the idea yeah. of the scandal on or the stumbling block. Flannery O'Connor writes in her epigraph to Wise Blood that she wrote the novel in such a way to show us that a belief in Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death, and that will be a stumbling block to Mm. many. Mm. So the scandal of holiness is that it requires you to stumble over it. It is not something you can acquire on your own. It is not something that can be earned by a certain kind of humanism or goodness. It is holy, it is other, it is apart, and yet we are invited to be holy by God's grace, right? There is this reception that we can have towards that holiness. But the scandal is that it it goes against all of our normal ways of functioning or our sinful natural ways, not the human natural ways of functioning, right? And so the temptation is to craft our own life, write our own story, come up with our own list of virtues, our own ways of being in the world, you do you, and holiness calls us out of that way of being, and Mm. that's why it scandalizes us. That's great. I'm not going to ask you a question about that in a minute here, uh, a follow-up kind of question on that. Um, um, Let me ask you this. Uh, Chapters in the book it's an, it's it's a very it's a diverse book and it reads well and it and, and it's a there's a definitely a, a thematic through line but there's a lot of diversity through there so you discuss writers like Flannery O'Connor and Zora Neale Hurston and uh, Julia Alvarez C.S. Lewis Graham Greene Willa Cather there are others too 
Um, and you take up topics like conversion and prayer and endurance and care for creation, issues of race and gender, death mm-hmm. and so on. Um, is that, I'm wondering, given that diversity, is there a chapter or two of the book that were really the heart of the project for you? Or, or is it the case instead that this book of eight chapters might have easily been 20 chapters? Yes, definitely it could have been 20 chapters. It was more difficult to limit than it was to say, we just need one or two of these and expound upon that. Because for me, what I recognized in looking at saints, and it really began with questions. This did not begin with an outline of here's the virtues I want to talk about, or here's the things we have to make sure we cover. It was more like I'm drawn to Loris, this character in this book that is wildly weird. He's a holy fool. He makes no sense to 21st century American Christianity. Why am I drawn to him? What is there that he is showing me about who Christ is? And so the longer that I would look at these figures and try to see, okay, what is biblical about them? What is traditional, like within the church story about them? And and what could that look like in our own lives? And the more that I asked that question and researched that and gave time to that, then it became the book that it was, you know, the longer I look at these people. There's that great uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Yeah. What I think my book is trying to tap into is Christ throughout history has shown up in his saints and his saints are varied, right? You don't have a profile of a saint because Christ created the whole world. The whole world was created through him. And thus the multiplicity of creation where you go from like ants and bees and flowers and lightning and mountains and bears and that wildness is also available in human persons to reflect Christ in wondrously different ways. I love that. In fact, that really touches things that are kind of a primal importance to me. I, I um, Once upon a time, going back 35 years, I was a missionary for two years from my church in France and Switzerland. And um, I became fascinated at the thought of, of ways in which God might move and act in a place that was defining itself as largely atheistic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where is God in the lives of those who don't believe in God or don't recognize God in their lives? Have you ever thought about writing things um, about writing where Christ plays in places where there's nothing overtly Christian about the book at all? Or is or, or do you find that it's more powerful to write about authors who themselves are thinking about Christ and you simply can bring out further and elaborate the context for why that's so meaningful in our present situation? I'm definitely drawn to stories where the writers are looking for Christ. It's a search that is meaningful for me. It's something that I have in my own life. But a lot of the characters and a lot of the authors did not begin Christian. They have gone through the search. There's a vulnerability on the page where they show the contrast between the old man and the new man, the old way of life and the new way of life in their characters. None of the saint figures, to use that term more broadly than canonization, right? None of those saint figures are like goody two shoes characters. Yeah. So none of that all of them exhibit the tension and the struggle of what it means to follow Christ in this life when you are not seeing him face to face. Right? How do you continue to have that desire for him that you feel occasionally, but then also you get called away by the world, you get distracted by the world. And uh, how do we always keep his face before us? And and that so I am drawn to that more than those who blaspheme their way to God. There is something to be said for that. 
Uh, I read a lot of Flannery O'Connor, so she was very much the demons will tell the truth about God, just like they do in Mark's Gospels. And I'm going to show the devil that we are possessed by as a novelist. I'm going to exercise the demons for my readers. And and so I do read works, you know, such as um, Percival Everett wrote this really vulgar, gory satire called Trees, in which white people are getting lynched for their connections to uh, lynchings. And it, so it's just really dark. Yes, you can see that God is even at work in Via Negativa because God is everywhere. And he's not hes not absent. I mean, he's not absent from anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so I do believe that, but I'm just always drawn more to the things that point me upwards uh, than the things that, that make me feel despairing or loss and, and long for God through the negative. Uh, that's very well said. Yeah, and I relate to that. And one of the reasons why I even began this podcast is I wanted to talk to more people who could make me feel that mm-hmm. way. <laughs> so, yeah, thank mm-hmm. you very much. And 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 um, yeah, that that was that was well stated. I wonder if I could ask you about some passages in the book. Just read a couple and ask for your kind of re- just response. If you can elaborate on, them. is that okay? Um, Absolutely. Here's one uh, toward the beginning of the book. Um, and this kind of goes to what you said earlier. I think a little bit of plays on the whole idea about sort of, you know, crisis stumbling block. Um, you write this, we are not meant to be the heroes of our story. We are not meant to be anything we desire. We are definitely not meant to be the author of our tale. Okay, right. Now this, that's a scandalous thought in its own right, you know, in our, in a, given our 21st century uh, proclivities. Um, what does that mean? We're not meant to be their heroes uh, or the authors of our stories. This has this comes from being a mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm a mom of three kids, and I, I dedicate this book to my children, who really are involved in my daily sanctification. And watching a lot of children's films, you know, growing up, I did not think at all of the influence children's movies were having on Mm. me or TV shows. I know that my parents did not think of it, right? They just Mm. turned on television on Saturday mornings. They turned on whatever Disney movie was the latest. Nobody thought about the philosophy behind those movies. But as someone who has a PhD, so I, you know, once you have a doctorate in philosophy, you can't shut it off. And you start watching these films and it, it becomes more frightening to you because they are always trying to tell the kids, no matter who you are, no matter what way you are, you have a right to anything you want. You have a right to be or craft your own identity, no matter what kind of, you are not bound by anything. You have no limits and it's not accurate to reality. So I had to constantly, I still do have to work with my children to discern rightly what they're seeing, what they're watching. And if that story is trying to tell them to be yourself and be your own hero and those kinds of limits that we are afraid of are the limits we are given for a reason. Uh, Flannery O'Connor says the imagination is not free. It is bound. And within limitation is where it finds its fruit. Great. I love that. Let me ask you kind of a follow-up question then to that. It's the question about this. How do you in your own life reconcile agency and vocation, right? So a sense on the one hand that God wants us to choose wisely and choose well and to assist in creation by creating beautiful lives, you know, on the one hand. On the other hand, that we're not to lead out in our own lives but try to follow God wherever God may want to lead us. How do you reconcile those two ends of that that spectrum? I think vocation is a wonderful way of thinking about it and not just meaning work, but all the different ways we are called. If you are receiving a call or hearing a call, right, it is a voice, it's invitational, it is an opening up. 
Whereas a God who controls you is not going to call you. He's going to tell you, right? He's going to force you. He's going to blackmail you and exploit you. And um, But our God doesn't do that. So there is so much agency in the relationship between creator and creature. And that same kind of agency is actually what I look for in great literature, that those authors give agency to their characters. Yes, they call them to certain things, but they don't define their destinies for them, Good. which is really important. Yeah, great. Okay, thank you. It's a great way to reconcile that question. I gave you a false binary. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a PhD. I'm used to saying both and. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. Right. Okay. Uh, here's another uh, quote from your book. Um, uh, it's from a, a chapter on uh, contemplation. I might ask you a couple of questions about this chapter. In fact, here's one. You write that to live in Jesus Christ is to experience the miracle of giving what we do not have. There's a nice paradox. Yes, I love that. I, I, you know, I write about it in the book and I talk about how I was on the plane. This is a personal story, but I'll share it with your listeners. You know, I was on the plane reading Diary of a Country Priest when he has that moment and he says, oh, you know, mystery of your grace that we are able to give with empty hands what we ourselves do not possess. And I just thought that is so accurate. I think I was on the way even to give a talk. And, and regularly, like when you're giving talks or, or you're writing or whatever it is you're doing, you have this imposter syndrome. Like, I am not capable of doing this thing that you have asked me to do. I mean, this is Moses before the burning bush. This is, you know, all of the judges being called to do what God is asking them to do. And like, I don't have the capability. <laughs> and that's not what he asks. He asks for a yes. He doesn't ask you to make yourself capable. He will make you capable as you need to be. And you see that throughout the book of Acts and, and throughout the disciples. And that that registered with me reading that book. I thought that is the whole human life. We are gifted and then we give. I love that. I've got a real conviction of that. Uh, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And, I'm, and, and, and you're right about the imposter syndrome, which is just perpetual. But I think that God likes us to feel that way, you know? <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't be put in a position so often. <laughs> so yeah, right? Yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> Okay, here's, here's another quote that I really, that I really uh, love from your book. Um, it's in that same chapter on contemplation. You write, contemplation not only converts our vision of ourselves so that we may see rightly, but also increases our love of God, of our neighbors, and of the world around us. Yes. So, you know, again, this ha comes from Augustine. I'm not going to know the exact passage, but one of the things I loved about Augustine is he talks about the wanting or the desiring or the wanting as in also like lacking. That lacking, like the longer you go with the lacking, you're increasing your ability to love more, right? Like it's actually like creating this um, greater space for love the more you want and desire mm -hmm. God. And, and I just thought more and more about what the saints were doing to our imagination that by cultivating these desires for God, we are increasing our capacity to love God. Yeah, I love that. You know, does literature assist you in kind of reaching in a more contemplative state? So, I mean, you write in this book about fiction, but I'm thinking about poetry now where, where it's defined by things like rhythm, the kind of music, imagery. Um, do these get you to kind of think differently uh, in, in, in this contemplative state of mind, or do they both kind of work to the same end, fiction and poetry? Good fiction and good poetry, yes, to me are very similar. Good dramas, yeah, good okay. words, words done well and in the right places, in the right context, at the right time. You know, there's so much that the Lord can do through good words. I love poetry because it teaches me how to name in 
name ineffable things. Mm. So when I'm reading at night and maybe I don't even know emotionally what's happening with me and I read a poem that has nothing to do with me, you know, I was reading Mandelstam the other night and he's talking about being in the gulags, like being, and I, of course I have no part of my experience that looks like that, but he was able to name things that registered with my current experiences and gave words to it. And once you name a thing, I mean, this is throughout children's literature too. Once you name a thing, you have no fear of it, right? You can, once you can say Voldemort out loud, <laughs> right? <laughs> or like once you can call on the name of Jesus and you know who that God is and is no longer an unknown God. So either direction, once you can name things, there's a certain amount of agency to use your word or power that you feel like you suddenly have that maybe you didn't have in the chaos you were experiencing. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yes, you have one more passage um, in the book, um, toward the back end of the book. You write, God's love should cast in us fear and trembling, and stories of his love and action should scandalize and discomfort us. God's love might hurt. Yes. So this is something that I've been taught by Dostoevsky, Flannery O'Connor, Graham Greene. Most recently, it was by Graham Greene when I was looking at this, this pain that you receive from God that is a grace in and of itself. And American 21st century, especially, we are all about finding ways out of pain, but pain can be such a tool of teaching, right? And pain can give us better vision of our current experiences, I believe. And so God's grace might come in the form of things that hurt. And I, I feel like I've learned a lot, of, a lot about that, and I've been grateful for that because those kinds of pains are hopefully cutting away the parts of me that are not supposed to be there, right? That if he's really forming me and casting me into his image, then he's going to have to burn off some of that dross. He's going to have to cut away the things that aren't supposed to be there. He's going to have to pull the weeds, <laughs> you know, all the different metaphors you can use, but that is going to be painful and it should, and we should expect that and be grateful for that. And that is a hard virtue to practice. It is a hard virtue to practice. Um, let me ask you a follow-up question about that. I mean, um, what you say, I think, is true, and uh, certainly is true to my experience, and it's true. I mean, you know, you read about this generally across, uh, you know, sort of Christian experience, and, and and other faith traditions also preach some version of this. This is uh, a universal idea. Do you feel like um, the way that God's love hurts feels different today than it did ten years ago? When you feel it, is it does it always hurt you in new ways, or do you now recognize the distinctive quality of that kind of pain of growth, and you say? I know what this is. This is good, even if temporarily difficult. I, I am more in the position to be able to say that than when I was younger. So, you know, 10 years ago, the things that I desired that I did not have, that I did not understand not having. So, for example, I wasn't I wasn't married 10 years ago. So imagining, you know, being single and the life of singleness, I did not rejoice in the current state. I was always desiring something that I was not meant to have yet or at that time. And those kinds of pains were hard for me versus, you know, I've, I've had two miscarriages in my life. So those to me are the most painful things I've experienced personally, like in the flesh and learning how to pray through that 10 years later, 10 years after um, getting married has just been so beneficial for me. I've been able to see, I mean, I, I just remember like praising God, you know, in the midst of my suffering, like. Lord, teach me through this. Lord, what are you doing? Like, please don't let me let go of you because the hurt gets so hard. Don't let me let go and don't let go of me. And so it's just, you know, literature has moved me to that place 
where I've been able to respond like that. I don't know how I would have had I not read Dostoevsky, to be honest. <laughs> mm, yeah, good. Thank you. That's a good point. Um, uh, right. Let, let me maybe conclude here a couple questions to ask you about about the book and about, yeah, about kind of how you imagine yourself in relation to the book. How do you measure success with a book like this one? I mean, does success come simply in writing it and being inspired to produce something and you try to measure up the inspiration you receive and you produce it and you can say, here's the artifact, is this good enough? And you know, I get it. Or um, does the book have to have some kind of tangible outcome for you to consider it work well done? How do you measure this? I do not have to have a tangible, tangible outcome. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I am very much a proponent of the little way of St. Therese, right? Where the small things in life can be mortifications, but also the small things in life can bring the greatest joys. And we don't have to have the big things. Too much of our culture is trying to say, you are successful when everyone notices. Mm -hmm. And instead, saints pursue anonymity. Now that's hard in this current culture, where in order for people, you know, the people who are producing your book and paying for your book and making your book are requiring that the book does receive attention in order for you to ever get a chance to do it again. But from my perspective, if I'm not meant to do it again, I will just write it and it will be published smaller next time if it wasn't great, you know, if, if I wasn't called to do that. Uh, so I'm always just doing and then assuming that God will do with me. Just to, just to show you the honesty of that statement, let me just give one more example because I think this is so hard for people to understand because the book has been successful, right? And so it's hard for someone to talk from that position about whether she would still write books if they weren't successful. But I do mean that. When I was in graduate school, all my friends were very concerned about getting jobs. Very, just right? Like, you're, you know, you're getting a PhD, you have to get a job afterwards. I honestly believed I was called to read and write. And if afterwards it meant that I was a starving artist, I was fine with that. If it meant that I was teaching elementary school when I finished my PhD, I was fine with that. Mm. If it meant I was an administrator for a para organization, I was fine with that. I have just always wanted to pursue the talents, invest them the way God calls me to, and he will do other things with them, mm. right? And so that, that's the way that I usually feel about even writing books. Um, I'm just, I desire to write them. I enjoy writing them. If they're successful, um, oftentimes I'm probably not seeing the real fruit of it anyways. God's seeing the fruit and I'm not, you know? Yeah, sure. It's a good example with the grad school. Because uh, yeah. that can be a, a place where the focus narrows so much, overwhelmingly so, that people kind of lose sight of a larger picture of what's yes. there, you know? And, and um, you know, not that, it's bad to have gainful employment. It's just right. that when we get too narrow in how we fixate, uh, we, we prevent, um, sometimes it's kind of God from breaking in and surprising us. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So if you imagine that you were your book's sole or primary reader, you were writing this as, as a series of journal pieces, you know, more yeah. than for a larger audience. Um, and as you think about your own efforts to imitate the lives of saints, if you were writing this book starting today, you know, what kind of chapter would you craft now if you were its primary audience? Would, what would you sort of want to consider way of topic or author? Um, what would you be feeling you needed to contemplate? So after this book came out, I received a lot more Catholic readers than I had anticipated, which has been wonderful. 
And as a Catholics, they kept asking about what about obedience and why isn't mm-hmm. obedience in there? And Protestants don't have a lot of familiarity with the virtue of obedience. We don't think about it. So I've been meditating on that more. And what does obedience look like for someone who has studied authoritarian regimes, you know, in Russia, that's most of my research has been Solzhenitsyn and Dostoevsky. I am also, I recognize the tension between following authorities and what is what that can look like as well. So it's been, um, it would be an area that I would enjoy learning about more is thinking about the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, the obedience to your elders within a Protestant environment, um, the virtue of obedience to God's call when he speaks to your heart or when he speaks through the word. And then also how can that obedience uh, be wrongly used or wrongly cultivated in someone? So what are the right ways and wrong ways to obey and to listen? Okay, very nice. So I guess the last question I'll ask you is this one here. What's uh, what's your current project? And I guess and we're going back again. This this book here seems so central to things you thought about for a long time. Is your current work something you've also thought about for a long time, or did it kind of come out of the blue? So I currently have three books coming out next year. Wow, who, they, those have been culminations of the last several years. Yeah. The one that I'm starting on, like I'm. I'm just now doing the research on is on women. And that has been very recent to me, probably the last five or six years that I've started researching women and women in the tradition, saints, women novelists, but also women theologians of the early 20th century Mm -hmm. have been fascinating to me. So that's going to be my next project and uh, hopefully be a really engaging story, a way of presenting either their biographies or their thoughts. Oh, fantastic. I look forward to reading it whenever it's out, which I guess would be two years from now. So, you know, three books first next year, then one. May- okay. Probably maybe five or six yeah, yeah. years, like, okay. then, like back to the drawing board. Yeah, I was being facetious, but yeah, but, yeah. You, but you, 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 you are a prolific writer. So um, this has been great, Jessica. Thank you so much for your time and your work and, and um, uh, all best things and blessings to you. Thank you. Um, as I usually sign my book, Sole, Soli Deo Gloria. So I'll just end with that. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.